co-leaders, mischief makers, boundary breakers, social media marketing gurus, influencers, what do they all have in common? They understand the human psyche, what people like, what they are attracted to, and they tap into that to be able to gain followers, whether for great reasons or not so great reasons. This week on the Try and Stop Me podcast, I sit down with Michael Sheen, the brilliant writer. He is the founder and CEO of Microframe Media, where they take consultants and turn them into industry-based thought leaders, almost like celebrities within their own industries. Like I said, not only is Mike the founder and CEO of Microframe, he is also an incredible writer. Some of his pieces can be found in Forbes, Psychology Today, The Huffington Posts, and so many other places. But today, what we do is we're sitting down to discuss his newest venture. He has just released his incredible book called The Hype Handbook. Mike has always been interested in humans, what they do, how they think, how they then follow certain individuals. And that's what gets us to the cult leaders, the boundary breakers, the social media gurus, the influencers. He really wanted to get a better understanding of why is it that people attract to certain groups and become fans or change their own lives or do social good or social bad because of that following that they've created. So today we are discussing a little bit about Mike's interests, how he came up with the book, more details on the book. I am super excited for this conversation. This conversation all in all is just truly fascinating. It's just interesting. Mike is a just brilliant man to speak with. I do have to put a full disclosure in. This episode was recorded about a month and a half ago prior to everything going down in the United States. So everything that we are speaking about here, we had no known knowledge about what was to come. And it's kind of interesting to hear Mike's perspective prior to something like this happening to be able to understand how people people, how humans can create hype and the effect that it does have on communities, on individuals. So let's dive into this conversation with Mike because I can't wait for you guys to hear everything that he's going to say and also really talking about the book. Let's get into it. I never wanted to be involved in business in any way, shape or form. I, I was allergic to that idea. Um, and um, I still, even though I own a business, I, I still consider business sort of a vehicle and a tool for getting important ideas out in the world and also selfishly doing what I want to do, like creating stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the society we live in, right? That's our best tool. But yeah, I mean, when I was ever since, I mean, we had this, um, this, I guess it was a cool school because in first grade, we had this woman come in. I think her name was Mrs. Waters or Ms. Waters. And she was a creative writing teacher. And we had just learned how to, how to write, you know, I mean, it couldn't have been that, that long. We would write stories. And I remember I had the best stories according to the people in the class, I guess, because they were funny. Like I, I had one called, I don't know, it was like WrestleMania 20, it was probably like 2020, you know, this was in like 1980. Yeah. <laughs> You know, and, and I remember Mr. T came in on like a spaceship, you know, to fight Andre the Giant or whatever. And people really like that. So I just got this sort of positive feedback from, from being creative. And ever since then, um, I wanted to write. And because I was into it, I guess I got better and I had a little bit of natural ability. And that turned into more natural ability because I practiced and I got positive feedback. So that that's always how I saw myself. I wanted to be a writer and pretty much a novelist. I mean, I, I, I didn't know I'd ever write nonfiction. And then I got interested in music and I decided I wanted to write songs and be in a band. And, and when I told my parents that after graduating college and I went to a good college, I, I went to Penn. So they probably didn't, I, I, you know, my parents always tell the story about how at graduation, like we went out to lunch after graduation. I'm like, I'm going to go to New York and like try to make it in a band. And they almost like had they're like, how much money did we just spend on college yeah, yeah, for you yeah, to yeah. go? Exactly. <laughs> so um, they, they weren't happy about that. But um, yeah, I, I tried my hand at that, you know, and I, I don't think I'm that talented at that. Although I think the songs were good and I played with guys who were better players than me. But I learned a lot about marketing and promotion. We, we were we were not like singer songwriters. We were sort of this like 
glam punk kind of band. And yes, so, you have to give us pictures of that. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I used to wear a big top hat and um, I, I sometimes we had a song called Ash Wednesday and I used to dress as a nun. And oh, my got, God. Well, so the, the point is that even <laughs> though, you know, it was funny and it was it was goofy. But um, also we sort of like always we never saw the distinction between like what I now call hype and the art, you know, I mean, a lot of the artists we liked, like like Bowie and Devo, it wasn't like we are creating our wonderful songs and the world will come see us. It was it was as much visual and about the promotion as it was about the, the art. And and then like we all liked hip hop too, even though we didn't sound like hip hop, but like groups like Public Enemy, where they had a hype man on stage and there was yeah. nothing to be embarrassed about. That was part of the thing. The street teams, that was cool. So I sort of learned about that. And we did all right. I mean, for 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 a band like that. I mean, we we had a residency at Arlene's Grocery, which which was a really popular place and we sold it out. And um we were on Showtime at the Apollo, believe it or not. Come and, on. That's not yeah. that's not a little chump change there. Yeah, we were booed off, but we knew that uh would happen, you know? <laughs> You yeah. just save that for last. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, we sort of knew. I don't know. I think in the back of my mind, I sort of, even though I knew we would be booed off, I, I kind of had this thing way in the back of my mind. Like, did you ever see the Buddy Holly story? No. So like Buddy Holly in like the 50s plays at the Apollo. And that's when like black and white people didn't listen to each other's music. And they were all like staring at him like they were ready to kill him, you know? And then they yeah. start playing and all the black people, the cool black people start snapping their fingers and dancing. And I think I like sort of thought that would happen, but they were booing before, like, but, but we hit the, fr and I, I, it was, it was bad. And, and, and but you know, so um, anyway, we, we, it was an experience to talk about on a podcast. One it was day an experience and it was funny. And yeah, yeah, we were, I mean, we were on the cover of the New York press. I mean, we, we did well, but then it fell apart, you know, I mean, these things happen and I got a job. Uh, and I thought I would just be there for a short time. It, it the good news is it turned me into a professional. I mean, I, I was pretty. Um, I, well, I didn't know how to. The band or getting the job? No, certainly not the band. I mean, <laughs> I, yeah. Um, I mean, you know, we we. No, I mean, this was a very. I mean, there was a startup division of a bigger company, and they brought me in for that because I had uh, worked at this company for a short time, Spin the Bottle, which uh, produced the show Pop-Up Video, which everyone used to like, and now no one knows what it is, but- Yeah, back um, in the day when TLC and MTV were good. All of that, you know, <laughs> yeah. So um, anyway, I, I went into it and um, that little division failed and they shifted us into the main company, which was, um, it ran call centers, like customer service call centers. So about as the opposite of artistic as you could <laughs> imagine. And, you know, but I'm a hard worker and I'm, I'm, I'm you know, I'm a relatively, I, I think, smart person. So I um, started to do well there. And I learned a lot in the first three years because I became a professional, a business person. But by eight years in, I was uh, still there. And I was very, very, very scared to leave by that point because I was used to the money I was making. And I think my confidence was a little shook from trying the artistic thing and, yeah. and failing, you know. And I didn't have the the maturity to think of that as like, oh, well, that's, you know, of course you're going to fail in things you do. But yeah. but um, I was scared to leave and I was I was very unhappy by the end because I felt like I was sort of not doing what I was put on the earth to do. But I was you're just sort of- suffocating a little bit. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, listen, there are people with worse problems. There are people yeah. who can't get any kind of job or who don't have the opportunity. And I did. But at a certain point, um, actually, when my daughter, who's now 10, was on the way, I just I, I had this like image of saying, like, I'm a vice president of solution development. And I didn't even know what that meant. And I was working like six days a week. And so I became a uh, freelance writer. I, I left. I built up a little practice, but like doing because um, I saw an opportunity. I read an article that you could do white papers and make mm -hmm. like a couple thousand dollars a white paper. And I did that at work. And I was like, oh, if I do a white paper a week, that'll be great. I can make what I was making. So yeah, that didn't happen. I, I, I left my job and um, <laughs> had no idea how to promote myself. So I had like a year's worth of savings. I had, had gotten some bonuses and I didn't spend them, but I was burning through it. And really, it was tough. And um, yeah, I mean, I had to learn how to market myself. So after reading every sales and marketing book, and it not really helping me at all, mm -hmm. I started to think back to like the band days and, and about what I was interested in and how a lot of times the best marketers aren't really marketers, you know, they're, they're, I don't know, the rock managers and hip hop managers, but also like cult leaders and propaganda artists. And I wow. thought, yeah, so I said, like, is what they do like really awful? Because if it is, I'm not going to do it. Is it really immoral? Yeah. Or 
is it just that sometimes immoral people use it, but it's just what it is and you can use it ethically. Mm -hmm. So I started to experiment with kind of that kind of like mischief and always trying to do it ethically. And I really mean that. That isn't me throwing that in there. Like <laughs> I didn't leave the call center industry to go out and become like a con artist, you know, like the that cult wasn't- leader, you know, creator. Yeah, right, I, that wasn't- <laughs> But I don't Wait, know. So I, what what interested yeah. you about that? Like who specifically would you were you like, wait a minute, these people have something, even if they were a cult leader, right? They they created something to make all these people follow them. So who was the type of person that you were like, this is kind of interesting and in how it takes off? Yeah, I, it's a great question because I don't know where that interest comes from, except um, I have a few thoughts. I mean, I remember when I was in high school, I was at home one night and I was flipping around between this thing about the Grateful Dead, some documentary about the Grateful Dead and a documentary about mega churches, like, mm. like Pentecostal mega churches. And, you know, the Grateful Dead people were like waving their hands in the air and flopping around and swaying around. And then like, I went over to the mega church thing and they were waving their hands in the air and flopping around. <laughs> and so, and I was like, these are the two most different things ever. You've got like this sort of, if, if the Grateful Dead is a religion, it's about free love and do what you want and anti-religion, right? Yeah. It's about, you know, and then you have a church where women won't even show their ankles and they were behaving the exact right. same way. And I said, it's it, it just, I don't know, it got, maybe because of my interest in music, but, and, and I've had transcendent experiences at concerts, you know, and I'm not religious. And I started thinking like, what is it about human beings in groups that like, we think we're so rational, but we're so easily moved, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and, and I, I don't know, I just, ever since that, I think got really interested and I remember there was a friend of mine, he, he told me when that Doors movie came out in high school, he read the biography of Jim Morrison. And he said that Jim Morrison, I don't even know if this is true. I've like tried to find this since then, but it resonated <laughs> with me at the time. Yeah. <laughs> but he told me that Jim Morrison knew how to put like five people in the crowd and do certain things and he would cause a riot. And I used to think like, how does that happen? So I don't know, I, I guess, and even beside the music stuff, I've always been interested in religions. I've always been interested in like political propaganda. I, I don't know why. The you know? humans, it sounds really like the human psyche behind it too, is like, yeah, it, not necessarily just the topic, but the, how it affects humans or resonates with humans and that, then what that, it makes them it. do. <laughs> that's it. I mean, that's the through line. Like, what is it? It's almost like the stuff itself doesn't matter. You yeah. know what I mean? Like people will say things like, oh, you know, all religion is terrible. We should have no religion. So then they create communism. But like communism in the Soviet Union was a religion. You couldn't say and do certain things there. You know, Marx was the person instead of Jesus. I mean, it, so it's like the details don't matter. Humans yeah. have this need to like behave in these ways. And that just became you know, really, really interesting to me, I guess. Yeah. And I think more of the content was able to be seen because of like YouTube probably 10 years ago when they were starting to pump out everything on videos. Now, I mean, I scrolled across a YouTube clip and it was something about like, I don't know, forming a religion like for Satan. I was like, what am I watching? And why <laughs> really? am I still watching this? <laughs> like, why is this interesting? It's just like something's interesting when uh, when a group of people go to a topic and they like the topic and then they they go full force into that topic. So I think it's interesting what you're doing is just researching all these people and the way it works. Yeah, I mean, and at the time it came a little bit out of desperation too back then because like I was like, okay, like what is marketing really? Like everyone talks about it like it's this profession, you know, like sales pages and funnels and this and that. And those are all tools, right? But like there have been quote unquote marketers since that world word existed. I mean, you know, the, there's this epic poem, the Aeneid, which is considered the greatest Latin work in all history. And that was written thousands of years ago. And it was literally commissioned by the first emperor of Rome after mm -hmm. he dismantled the Republic to give legitimacy to his dictatorship basically so you interesting. know so like that's yeah. marketing right and it yeah. worked i mean he became a hero i mean he was the great hero of, of rome i mean but he was a dictator you know yeah. i mean he, he overthrew a democracy right so like and i just thought to myself like okay can i think about the tools second and think about how do i mess around with tapping into those universal principles so the first thing i did which was scary 
but it worked. <laughs> I had gotten, this was like one of the things going for me. I had talked my way into a column at Inc. Uh, magazine, the digital one. Yeah. So I had been watching Gary Vaynerchuk stuff and I disagreed. While I think he's fantastic in terms of like how he markets himself and how he markets Wine Library TV, I thought the advice he was giving to hustle around the clock and social media was bad advice, but I was a nobody and he's famous in the field. And I wrote an article called Why Gary Vaynerchuk is Flat Out Wrong. Now, I wrote it for two reasons. One, I felt that way. But two, I, one of the principles I kept seeing with these hype artists, as I now call them, is that they always set themselves in opposition to something. Like the Rolling Stones' first manager saw the Beatles, and the Stones were actually less bad boys in real life than the Beatles. They were like middle class. And really? The Beatles were, yeah, like Mick Jagger went to LSE, which is like Wharton. You know, <laughs> and John Lennon was like a, a street thug, you know, and yeah. he, you know, yeah. But but the Beatles had a mat. So the Beatles used to wear leather jackets on stage and smoke and eat sandwiches. And they had this manager, Brian Epstein, who said, you know, you can't do that. This is show business. So he's the one who put them in suits and Cleaned made them up. bow, you know. The Stones were like middle class good boys. And they had <laughs> and they had this manager, Andrew, and they eventually started to behave like their image. Rock you know? stars. Yeah. Yeah. But um, especially Mick Jagger, more than Keith Richards, but they they um had this other manager, Andrew Lou Goldham, which you sh everyone should look him up. He's the quintessential hype artist. He basically said, look, there's already a Beatles. We need to be the anti-Beatles, right? You need to set yourself in opposition. So he said, listen, all the other bands are wearing suits because that's what they did at the time. You know, don't wear, like wear your street clothes, slouch in interviews, be kind of rude. And so I- yeah, and it worked. So so I, I started to like think like, what if I set myself against the leader in the field? You know, everyone yeah. bonds over this guy, you know, like he's like God. So I did that. He, oh, resp he, he responded to me that what? night. What? Really? Yeah, and I was scared. I mean, I was not as savvy. I mean, I, I I'm remember- sorry I just said that. <laughs> no, no, but it was no. great. No, it turned out really well. I think I was smart, but I, I was scared. I, I was like nervous and I did it anyway. I didn't expect that. He responded to me that night and he started out very nice. And then by the end, he was like, you could tell he was, he was upset. I mean, he was aggravated that I challenged, you know, come at the yeah. king, you best not miss, you know what I mean? And then all his like fans who were really dedicated started like harassing me, you know, they were like, really <laughs> insulting me. And like, I was like, what did I do? But then I, I got like 50 Twitter followers in an hour. And wow. I, because there were all these other people who felt like I yeah. did, but they had no tribe leader. And that was like the start of my career. I started to do well. So what'd that. you say and how did he respond? So I think this is important. I didn't troll him. And I think right. there's a difference between being contrarian and, and taking a stand and trolling. I, I didn't insult his personality. I didn't insult his looks. I didn't say he was an idiot. You didn't bring his family into it. I didn't nothing. bring his family yeah. into it. And I don't feel that way. I mean, I wouldn't have done it anyway, even if I felt that way. But I think he's fantastic you know yeah. I, I think no one gets that successful without being awesome at what they do absolutely yeah I picked a fight with one of his ideas that I fundamentally disagree with so he used relentless work and hustle mainly tweeting and being on social media and making videos to promote wine li library tv which was a business that sold wine online and it was a great business but he wasn't making the wine. You know what I mean? He was a yeah. salesman. Right. And he was telling all of these kids, usually kids, usually young people, that they need to hustle all the time. And, and I couldn't understand why it was so important to him to constantly tell these people to break their back. What, what, like, why? I mean, most people who are entrepreneurs, they understand that they have to work hard. So most mm -hmm. of his followers aren't making any money. They're sitting, he tells them, tweet from the toilet at three in the morning. I mean, they, but what if you're making the wine? Yeah. So yeah. what I thought was you need to build systems. It's bad advice to tell all these young people to be on social media 24 seven. And they're all like, yeah, hard work, hard work, but like hard, hard work for, for what? Like, is, does that really need to be said? I mean, who's lazy people right. are... I mean, what are they work? What are they tweeting about on the toilet? If you're going to tell them to do that, like, what are they working for? Yeah. What are they tweeting about? Yeah. I mean, also, what if they need to, what if they run the winery? I mean, what should, should they not be working on their business? And also, is it really good to not take breaks? Like, are you right. really going to be like, so you have all these young kids running themselves ragged, but the thing about Vaynerchuk, yeah, he works hard, but like, 
he's like the best salesman in the world. You know what I mean? There are so mm -hmm. many other things that are needed. And then you have the guys from everyone works hard, but do you have to work so hard that your brain stops? Yeah. People working? are I mean, different. They're everybody's yeah. different chemistry. He's different than me or you and everybody else in between. So what works for him is not going to work for everybody. Well, the other thing and you burn out, you burn out. That's the other thing. So it's very funny. I, I told you, I look at cults, a tactic that a lot of cult leaders use is they have um, their followers work like dogs. Mm -hmm. And the reason, there are a couple of reasons they do that. Like the Moonies, you know, um, are notorious for having their their people like work 67 hour days, you know, for free. And there have even been cults where they have people dig ditches, you know, like meaningless work. And there are a lot of reasons for that and we can go into it. But one of the reasons is it, it, it dulls your ability to think critically. Mm -hmm. And as a result, you accept anything they tell you, you know? So yeah. Gary telling his people to do that helped Gary more than it helped those kids. You know what I mean? Because right. it made them like followers of him. Yeah. So I said all that and he didn't like that at all. And, <laughs> you know, he, um, but his argument against what I said was, and again, I have nothing but respect for it, but it was really poorly thought out. I mean, it went from like, oh, you know, Michael Shine has some good points to like, oh, you know, I could stop working tomorrow, but I work hard, you know, and, and he got really agitated and that helped me. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So when you were transitioning from the job into your own thing, talk about how scary that was. Cause you had, you were blown through money. What kind of really was the takeoff after that Gary V encounter? Was that like the pushing force of like, Hey, I have something going here. I understand people now. I, people are starting to pay attention a little bit more. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was really scary. I mean, but I hated my life at the end of that job. Again, I don't want to love how honest you are about yeah. that. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't want to so minimize. Important. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't want to minimize, you know, what other people go through. And I don't like to normally say that because to someone who's getting bombed in Syria or whatever, that's, yeah, right. you know, world's smallest violin, right? But I woke up every morning and sat on the toilet lid and sort of like gagged, like I felt nauseous, no. you know? Yeah. Yeah. You know, my, and it was when you're there, there's yeah. no, you can't get up. You can't, you got to leave. So I was, I was really unhappy, but I stayed there three years feeling like that, you know? Oh, and Mike. It, yeah, I did. I know because I had never, I didn't trust my ability to make it on my own. I had had, you know, I grew up in a family where, um, not really my mom, but other people in my family where it was sort of, if you failed, it was like on you, you know what I mean? Like yeah. you, you didn't, you know, so I, I felt like it wasn't just like, ah, oh, you tried an experiment. It was like a self-worth thing, you know? Yeah. So I don't want to have to face the table at, at the holidays and see the you faces know. and the judgment. Yeah. And you know, some of my parents' friends, I remember one guy when I was doing the band thing and I finally quit like this, this guy they knew who was like this rich patriarch kind of guy of this other family they were friends with. He goes, oh, you're finally getting serious. Yeah, you start finally stopping to fool it around, you know? So that kind of That's stuff. such crap mentality. <laughs> you know, but um, <laughs> in, in any case, you know, um, yeah, I had all that stuff going on, but I was really unhappy. I was taking it out on people in my, I was close with, I, I was, I was just not great. And, and also I always felt like I had a calling, you know, like I, I just felt like, am I William Shakespeare, uh, you know, doubtful, but, but uh, you know, there's something I'm truly into and that I'm truly, I think good at mm -hmm. and I'm, like, working, doing quality assurance scripts at like a call center company. Yeah. So um, when I was really struggling and everything, I would just think to myself, like, it's better than what I was doing. Like, I can't. <laughs> and, you know, I moved, I was in Florida. I moved back to New York. I, I was in this kind of writer community. I worked at this place, the Brooklyn writer space, and there were like real writers there. And I, I just, I don't know. I was energized. It felt like an, an adventure at the time, you know? That's what it is. The pivot between being so miserable to all of a sudden, no matter if it's, if you're losing money, not making money, but that energized feeling behind it, it's going to hit at some point because I you're passionate about it. I wasn't really losing money. I mean, I make it worse than it was. I had a year's <laughs> worth of savings. And at the end of that year, I still had some money in the bank, you know? That's a success story, really. But I, but I wasn't making a living. You know That's, what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah that, that yeah. It, it, it was that, I, you know? So, but, but that, and, and, and I knew I couldn't sustain it. Right. Um, and I was working, it was, it was a bad business model because I would work 
like I, I would get writing jobs and I would do them for like 31 days straight and burn myself into the ground. And then I would have nothing for the next 30 days. You know yeah. what I mean? So, but yeah, I mean, once the Gary Vaynerchuk thing happened, people started, I started getting that all that work and uh, more and more just people liked what I was doing. And then I found out I was sort of, you know, when, when people want to buy a novel, they want to buy your writing. When people are buying your marketing, your uh, like business writing, they're buying the result. They're buying sales. Yeah, they're buying marketing. Was- Yep. Yeah. So I started to realize people wanted the marketing more than they wanted the writing. And I realized I had some talent there too, based on this stuff we just talked about. So that was when I started. To, and I, I like the idea of like retainer clients and ongoing income mm-hmm. and things like that. So, so I, uh, I made that shift. Yeah. It sounds like you were kind of being a disruptor in the industry, like not going against the norm a bit, right. And going towards the marketing, looking at it from a different perspective. And that's why it started to, cause people, it was a fresh of breath air for some people. I'm sure. I hope so. I think yeah. so. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you started to become successful. Does that lead you to where you are here and then creating this book or is there a little bit more in between? No, I mean, I, yeah, I built a business, you know, yeah. I mean, I, I had a team, I, I brought on some substantial clients. We did some really good campaigns. We, we still do. Uh, I think a big part of what led me to write the book beyond all the typical business reasons, you know, of, of like whatever credibility, et cetera, et cetera. One is that I'm a writer. So like a lot of, a lot of business people write books because they need like a virtual business card to get speaking gigs and get deals. I mean, I, I, I got obsessed with the topic and I tried to make a really good book because I, I, I still identify as a writer more than a business owner. And I own, I own an agency. I own, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I basically work with idea-based businesses. We do. And um, we find a niche and we come up with a contrarian point of view. And we basically do a series of activities that make them the dominant figure in that small niche so they can drive more business. And we do well with that. And our clients do well. Um, and I love it. I really have grown to, to like it a whole lot. But I've always wanted to have a book and I wanted it to be a good book. And I think the second reason though, is that I've seen a lot of people, especially in recent years, using these mass psychology techniques, using hype to do really bad stuff that I disagree with. Hmm. And I feel that even though it's not immoral or moral, there's a certain kind of person who sees the world as it really is more than than the well-meaning people and they take to it more easily and i was seeing what was going on it was so clear to me and i would see i'm trying to be vague because we're not supposed to be political yeah. but i would see people get worked up into a frenzy and i would see that they were being conned you know mm-hmm. and i said and then i would talk to my clients some of whom were big companies but some of whom were like making a living, you know, but they had such good stuff and they were just like so reluctant to promote themselves in this way. And it just bugged me that like the people doing great work and great social causes and great products, it's so much more rare for those people to have these tools because A, they don't know what they are and B, they have wrong conceptions. They, they, no one's made the case of why it's worth doing. So I A, wanted to make the case that it's that you owe it to yourself to give yourself a shot as long as you're being moral by arming yourself this way and then really reverse engineer all the tools. Like I'll give you, I'm going to look at all the people who ever did this stuff, drill down into the principles that work and sort of show you how to do it, how, how to generate hype. And um, so that became important to me, you know, as well. Yeah. So this was over the sense of five years in the past five years of creating the book or because yeah. I know you've taken some time. No, um, it's it's funny. Uh, so I thought of the idea maybe about five years ago. The idea was percolating in my brain for a while. I think at first I actually wanted to do a podcast called Hype Men, like the hip hop term where I profile <laughs> different like hype artists, yeah. you know. And then and then it turned into to a book idea. It's funny. I was um, on a business trip, and it was like one of the first Trump debates when everyone thought he was like a joke candidate and Mm -hmm. couldn't win. And I have no idea what your political affiliations are. It almost doesn't matter, you know? Doesn't matter, yeah. Yeah. And and this, it doesn't matter to this conversation either. Um, But I was laying on top of like my bedspread and flipping through a book. And I read these weird books. So this book was called The Crowd. It's by this guy, Gustav Laban. It was written in like 1895 by this guy who was a French guy who saw something called the Paris Commune, which was this revolutionary movement, burn Paris to the ground, even after it was clear that they had lost, like for no reason whatsoever. Mm. They were like worked up into a frenzy. And he became obsessed with figuring out 
why they did what they did. So he became like the first crowd psychology person. And it was all about how, how do leaders influence crowds irrationally. So I'm sort of flipping through this book. It's a pretty short book. And I'm watching like the first, one of the first Trump debates and no one thought he would win. And it was, I was like, this guy's going to win. Like the stuff, like it, it said stuff in the book, like crowds respond to symbols of prestige. If there is no prestige, money is an excellent substitute. Crowds respond to um, vague, visual, open-ended slogans that you can put, they, that don't really mean anything, that they can yeah. put their own meaning into, you know? Yeah. And he was like sitting there saying, make America great. And they'd ask him what he meant by that. Like, great. America must be great. And make America great. You know? Figure it out on your own. Yeah. Or, or like, it, he wouldn't even say that. In, he would just like, like, insert you know, your, yeah, your exactly. America here. Right. That, yeah. That's it. That's the implication. And so, and I came home, I remember having dinner with my friends and being like, I think this guy could win. And they're like, 0% chance. I'm like, okay. You know, I mean, you're you like, know? but this book tells <laughs> <Yeah>. me different. <laughs> so I, I just got so interested and I was like, I don't know. And then, so anyway, I was like convinced this was the greatest book idea in the world. So I wrote, you know, for people who don't know, for nonfiction books, you don't write the whole book. You write a proposal, but the proposals are long. I mean, there are 60 pages. They're hard to do. In some is ways, a proposal. Found, so like back up on the proposal, is that like the summary of the book so you can get it out and like sell more, it type to somebody? Yeah, but it's more than that. It's It's a whole, so if you write a novel, like a fiction book, people want to see the book because it's about your writing. Mm -hmm. If you write a nonfiction book, you sell a book on the basis of a proposal. And I didn't know this like 10 years ago, you know? Who does if you don't do it, right? Yeah, which is why all these people writing business books should not write the whole book if they want to get it published, you know? And they do, you know? So basically you write, it's more than, it's a summary, it's an extensive outline, which, which has like one or two paragraphs a chapter. You write a chapter or two to show that you can write what your voice is. You write a marketing plan you write an in-depth bio. They're hard. Like I found it in some ways harder than writing the book. Not yeah. as long, but it was, it's, it's like a sales document meets parts of the book, you know, and they're long as I've said about five times for some reason. So, <laughs> so um, yeah. Cause it must've been long. <laughs> it was long. So I wrote this thing and I, I sent it to like a bunch of literary agents and I got one. And he was a really top literary agent. And I was like counting the advance money. I, I was like so pleased, you know? And he was a oh, real- Oh, that's like the kiss of death too. When I know. you count it before it happens. Yeah, like Kenny, Kenny Rogers, right? You yeah. <laughs> Never yeah. count your money when you're sitting at the table. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I was doing that. Um, anyway, the, the guy was fine, but not, you know? I mean, he just sort of sent it to a bunch of people after we revised the thing. They said no. And mind you, they get 15%. And he was like, sorry, I, I can't sell. And it was like 17 people that he sent it to. And a few of them were like, I really like this writing style, but it doesn't fit in our thing, I, in our roster. I really like this, but I tried to sell it to the sales team and, and you know, not, uh, you know, so that was disappointing. And I guess the way most of these agents work, some are really good and some just sort of have a Rolodex and they send it to who they send it to, right? And they hope one sticks. Right. So I was like, all right. So, and this agent had me like sort of make the book a little more intellectual. I think he kind of thought of himself as, as like an in-house editor. And I know that because he said that. <laughs> and he, he had me going down this very like this, I don't know, it was almost like, and I went with it, it but it, it was like not concrete by the time. It was yeah. Done. By and the then, time he was done with it, you had lost you inside of it. Right. Well, no, I hadn't lost me because I'm sort of a heady guy, but I <laughs> knew deep down that what it should be is tactical. I yeah. just had, in fact, I went with it because it was fun. I would love to write this big intellectual book, you know, but I ignored my sales instincts and when everybody came back with their comments, I'm telling you like seven out of the 17 people said, I like this book, but it's not, doesn't have enough how to's. So that irritated me, but you know, I'm a big boy. I, I, I went along with it. Mm -hmm. So then I was like, you know what? I'm going to rewrite this proposal back the way I wanted to do it. How to's, et cetera, et cetera. So I went out, I, I cut ties with the first agent, found another agent who was from, who was an even bigger agent and had even bigger books and really liked the thing. And it was the same thing. Like, I'm not blaming the agent, but it was not what I expected. It was like, he sent it out to people. And it yeah, didn't work. he's just hitting forward, really. Yeah. yeah. And look, they have the relationships, but it, it almost seemed sort of like a inside deal. It's like the editors won't look at your proposal unless it comes from an agent and they won't. But like, mm -hmm. 
it's like you're giving up 15% because there's no other way to get it. Exactly. Because editors yeah. will not, even if you get it in the hands of an editor, they'll say, go get an agent. It's like this weird inside game. Do agents take on everybody or they won't take on everybody? No, they no, have no, to no, believe no. in your work, they have right? To like the book, which is, it's hard to get an agent, which is why I, 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 I was so pleased. It's very hard to, especially a good agent. I mean, if yeah. an agent says to you, pay me money and I'll represent the book, that's not an agent. That's a right. scam, you know, okay. but if someone is doing it for a commission, you know, they, they have to like the book. It's, right. it's, I mean, out of 45 agents I sent it to the first time I got one. So, you know, um, one is better and, than none. Right. But I'm a professional writer. I mean, they're, you know what I mean? So, and that's a pretty low hit rate. So yeah, it's hard to. Well, I mean, you starting off right at the right. very beginning, the first book, you're not going to, you know, if you got 30 agents, that would have been, you know, the next Harry Potter. I'm sure she didn't start no, off getting a bunch worse. of agents. No, I mean, she uh, was rejected by a lot of editors too. Yeah. That's yeah. my point. My point is it's really, it's, it's a hard thing to do. You it's know, a it's process. Not, yeah. Right. So I was actually, I was convinced that since I had an agent, I would get a book deal, you know? So after it didn't happen the second time, I was like, you know what? Obviously this isn't a good idea. I think it is. A lot of other people do, but it's apparently not going to sell, you know, because I've been through two agents. So I started thinking to myself, like, okay, I, I still really believe in this thing because enough people told me it was good and I just believe in it. Can I make it into products? Can I make it into courses? So I, I was like thinking about it. So then it, around the same time I got this is a whole other story, but I got a call from these two guys who are now friends of mine, Sibin and Zayu, who are Chinese, who moved to the United States when they were 12 and 14, met in college, started a business selling information courses to Chinese entrepreneurs, and now like travel around the world and make a lot of money and have this awesome business. So they wanted me to write about them in Forbes. They pitched me because I wrote for Forbes. And I like their idea. So I did. So they met me in New York and we hit it off. So I wrote about them in Forbes and they're like, you got to come to China. We'll pay for everything to speak. And I'm like thinking to myself, okay, I, I, these guys seem cool. But for all I know, there's going to be like a white van, you know, that picks me up and they're going to like make me like speak on behalf of the People's Republic of China. You know, I, I don't know, you know, but I, you know, yeah, I, it was weird, but I went with it and it turned out they flew me out business class, um, picked me up in a white van, which was very funny. But um, you were like, I knew this was happening. Yeah, exactly. But the white van <laughs> drove me to the St. Regis <laughs> and um, I spoke and it was crazy. I, I uh, it was a really big crowd. I was on TV. People were taking their picture with me. Um, but the reason I bring this up is I went home and Sibin and Zayu and I thought of bringing other Americans to China since I got such a good reaction. So I set up meetings with people I know not about the book. And one of them was this woman, Heidi Krupp, who's a, a successful PR person who we get along well. And then she's pitched me on a bunch of ideas. So she invited me to the Palm and we're sitting there. And I told her about the China thing. She said, oh, cool. And she said, what else are you working on? I said, well, I, I might do this coursework thing about the hype idea. And she said, you should make a book out of that. And I said, well, funny, you should mention that because um, I uh, tried and she goes, I could sell that. And I'm like, do you sell books? She's like, well, I, I just started a literary agency since so many of my clients are authors. She goes, I could sell that for you. And she sold it in two weeks to McGraw-Hill. Oh <laughs> yeah, so it was like five years and two weeks. <laughs> With a decent advance and everything. I mean, it was like a real deal. Oh, so yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. So it that shows was, that you don't give up though. And you don't stop talking about what you actually want to do. No, I did give up though. I mean, if I, I mean, I, I, I mean, I was going to do something with that thing, but I, I figured like the book wasn't going to happen and I didn't want to self-publish, you know? So I you was might have gave up, idea. but your subconscious was still talking about it for it to come out of your mouth when she was there. No, no, I wasn't giving up on the hype thing. Oh, I was okay. looking for a, that I said I was going to make workshops and courses. Yeah. I really believed in the idea. I just didn't know that there was a publisher because it had been through two top literary agencies and sent to all the big houses. I thought, right. in fact, it was sent to, the, it, it was sent to McGraw Hill and, and it didn't, you know, come and back. And then it landed. Yeah, you know, the thing about Heidi is, I mean, she's a pusher, you know what I mean? I mean, she she was a she was an agent. I mean, she went out there and she didn't just send it through email. She, she was hungry for her own business too, right? Yeah. So she was pushing. She did what an agent does. I mean, yeah. should do. She represented me. You yeah. know, I mean, she Absolutely. fought for it. Yeah. Great. That's incredible. So yeah, tell us great. more about a little bit more about the details of the book. I know it's coming out, but just little sneak peeks for people don't want to run out and get it when it is available. Yeah, thank you. Um, it's basically, I, I looked at 
I, countless self-promoters of various stripes from the really nefarious characters like cult leaders and propagandists to Richard Branson and Martin Luther King to rock managers to whatever. And I wanted to see, are there principles that I could distill from all of these diverse characters that anyone with enough hard work could apply? Just mm -hmm. regardless of their temperament or what kind of person they are. And I found that there very much are. And I also only really use tactics that I or people I know have tested in the field. So like I looked at a lot of stuff theoretically, but because I have an agency, I was able to try a lot of them. And then I know other people who are marketers. So they used certain versions and so, yeah, I mean, the book is, is um, I don't even call them chapters. They're called hype strategies, you know, introduction oh, and cool. epilogue, and then it's 12 hype strategies. And, and it basically, um, and some of them are make war, not love, you know, that whole idea of picking fights. Um, one is theatricality, and it tells you, you don't have to be big and over the top to, to tap into people's desire for drama. Even, you know, for example, real estate agents use staging, you know what I mean? Yeah. And no one thinks of that as over the top, but there's other things too. There's um, one called Make It Scientific, how you can take simple concepts and wrap them in like lingo and scientific language to make people think that they're more, you know, more, I don't want to say believable because it's not about lying, but like I, I use the example of Simon Sinek, you know, he has start with why, which is a really basic idea. If you think about it, it's basically like love what you do. Right. Um, not exactly, but whatever, but Find he talks about, yeah. yeah, but he talks about the cortisol and the hormones and the dendrites and the neurology. And the guy is, is an advertising executive. I mean, he's not a, he's not a scientist yeah. or a neurologist. <laughs> right. So as a result, you know, so there's just those kind of things. And, um, the idea is that if you use them all and you really master them, even people who, who find it challenging to promote themselves can, um, can really drive a lot of attention around their ideas and around their good ideas. So, um, yeah, it's, it's McGraw-Hill. It's coming out January 12th. And I mean, there's always a gap between when something's recorded and when it comes out. I don't know how many bookstores will be open then, but uh, certainly I love supporting bookstores, but it's also available at Barnes and Noble online, Amazon online, all the typical places. You know. Yeah. Well, we'll all definitely run to go get it. So how much of like this driving down and writing this book has actually helped you in life and your own business? Has it helped you narrow down and zone in on certain things? Cause now you. Yeah, no, it has. I mean, a lot because I just, I kept researching this stuff and I was running my business at the same time. So whenever I'd have a good idea, I'd already try. I mean, to give you an example, I, I need to sometimes try to book clients on podcasts mm -hmm. to get them, you know, because that's a really good way to get attention for them. So there, there's a concept that I call piggybacking or creating a secret society where you should always make something seem like it's happening on a grassroots level, but on the, under the surface, you should have a few key figures who can pull strings for you. So I, I read that idea and how certain people did that. There's this guy named Edward Bernays, who was called the father of PR, who did all kinds of crazy stuff, like getting women to smoke and getting Americans to eat bacon for breakfast and all kinds of crazy things. <laughs> But um, no one knew who he was and, and he was extremely influential because he had like this key individuals and he would pull a few strings and this like movement would happen. So I started to do that. I would build relationships with people who didn't have one podcast, but who knew every podcaster there was. And yeah. I would foster relationships with them so that when it was time to do that, I would get them to make it happen for me. Yeah. So that's just one example, you know? That's, I mean, it's smart. It's definitely very smart. Who was, did you have like a favorite person that you researched or a favorite cult leader? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I really like Charles Manson. Know, He's my I guy. Like, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I like the who guy who makes like people really drink interesting. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cause they can be interesting. Right? interesting we don't watch yeah. these documentaries about murder mysteries for nothing. Right. No, they're you fascinating. Know? Gosh, I mean, it depends from what perspective you're coming from, right? right. Like, I mean, Andrew Lou Goldham, the, the Stones manager, I find really interesting. And I eventually got to meet him, which was That's awesome. Cool. So that was cool. But he's just the coolest guy on the planet, just in terms of like pure coolness. You know what I mean? But then this guy, Edward Bernays, who is responsible, like literally this guy used to call what we so he wrote a book called propaganda and then after the wars people said that that was a bad term and so he renamed it public relations like he coined that term so that oh, you know yeah. so this guy 
women did not smoke. I mean, they smoked, but they barely smoked because it was considered extremely uncouth, like a hundred something yeah. years ago, like yeah. really rude and crude. And so he saw this. So on behalf of Lucky Stripe Cigarettes, he created a spontaneous march of suffragettes, you know, feminists of the time trying to get mm -hmm. the vote. And he called it the light up for liberty to show that they were not going to listen to what men said. And they lit up their cigarettes. So wow. everyone, so all these people started to copy that because it was the 20s oh, and the women. Yeah. So soon every women, woman started smoking. The other thing he did, he had people think of eggs and bacon. And I was in China and I said, what do you guys think of as the quintessential American breakfast? You know, yeah. in, and it was translated and they said eggs and bacon, you know? Uh, yeah. And I said, well, Dr. Seuss. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but before the twenties, Americans did not eat that for breakfast. You know, that was not really the thing. They, wow. farmers would eat big breakfast, but other, you know, it wasn't know. the staple breakfast. No, it, yeah. it was not at all. And he had Beech Nut as a client who produced a lot of pork products. So he had this doctor that he was really close to who had a lot of sway. This was this principal who wrote a letter to 5,000 physicians saying that bacon is the perfect breakfast food because it replaces the energy that you lose during sleep, like the healthiest breakfast food. So they started, <laughs> so, you know, so they started telling all of their patients to eat bacon wow that's like this stuff so this stuff like it's so interesting because like conspiracy you're like literally being the unseen forces that i found out bamboozled. about it's it's nuts the and the the perfect book name that he did have was the propaganda but they made him change it but that's really like marketing is at the end of the day pushing what what they really want to sell he believed in propaganda. He, the yeah. book is still called Propaganda. And then he later had other ones that changed it. But that book is still out. And everyone should read that because it's kind of old language. But beyond the fact that you'll learn a lot about marketing, his philosophy of life. So he, he talks about how in a democracy, most people are ignorant and uneducated, but we can't have a monarchy. So it's up to enlightened capitalists like him to guide the population in the right direction through wow. propaganda. Wow. And this wow. guy actually was, one, <laughs> yeah. And he was one of the people who um, was on the committee, the Creel committee, which, um, you know, World War I was not a clear cut thing. Like World War II, we should have been in and everything. But World War I, I mean, most people don't even know why we fought that war. And most people right. were against it. And all of this propaganda, anti-German propaganda was created. And they came up with a slogan, make, uh, Make, I, think, I might get this wrong, but I think it was Make America Safe for Democracy. And he he was on the team that created that. And, that, and then when the war was over, he applied that stuff to um, the commercial sector. Oh, and he was Sigmund Freud's nephew. So yes, he's my most, he's my oh. most, he's my most interesting uh, hype artist. Yeah. yeah, because it sounds like, I mean, they knew something years ago that we would all I mean, humans never change, really. They don't. And they don't. We just evolve with technology. But at the end of the day, our brains are still the same chemistry. So what they Not wrote the about game, in these simple books back in the day still are probably used in these big tech marketing agencies now. These books are so much better than the vast majority of mm -hmm. these marketing books that tell you how to use landing pages and this and that, you know? Yeah, I mean, and it, what it, social media to push out on what time. Yeah, use Google yeah. Plus and, you know, whatever that is dead now. It, it's, it's like, yeah, it's, 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 it's funny that you say that about, about the brains. I mean, do you remember when Wired was around in the, in the early days and they were like, you know, social media is going to create this utopia and people are going to be open and da, 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 da. And meanwhile, now it's like, we're just, a bunch of cavemen with sticks, but with Twitter in our hands, yelling and screaming at <laughs> each other. Yelling at you know? each other yeah, from exactly. our kitchen table. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. Meanwhile, like if we actually sat at the kitchen table with each right. other, nobody would ever say that stuff to people's faces. That's what's funny, right? I always yeah. used to see that about cars. You would be driving in a car and you're like, you know, you see some random a-hole because they cut you off by mistake. And just because you have the glass in front of your face and you would never, if someone bumped into you in the supermarket, you'd be like, oh, sorry, man, you know? Right? And now it's yeah, like that times a billion. You the flip milk, them okay? off. Or someone cuts in front of you to grab the milk because they didn't see you by mistake, you know? Because it's always a mistake. Yeah. You're like, excuse me. Oh, sorry. Oh, oops. You know? Yeah. And then in a car, you're ready to kill someone. And now it's like, we, we're in our car 24 seven screaming at people. No, and online yeah. screaming at each other. Right, that's what I mean. yourself into people's yeah. own lives and you're like, all right, everybody just 
take, take a, a break, take a deep breath, man. You know, yeah. Ugh. Yeah. Well, anyway, I mean, so, Mike, you and I could sit here and talk all day because I really could talk to you all day with how interesting great. it all is. You're a yeah. very good interviewer. I got to tell you. you, you ask you. good questions. Yeah. Thank you. It's definitely, it's a lot of fun to speak with you. So I'm excited for the book. Tell everybody the name of the book. Like you said, we can get it on, you said Barnes and Nobles. Yeah, barnesandnoble.com, of course, amazon.com, any any of those, you know, big providers. And you know what I'm going to do? I always forget the order of the subtitle of my own book because it's so long, kind of on purpose. <laughs> That's why I was like, you tell us. Yeah, I'm going to do that right now. <laughs> but I'm going to pull it up. This is embarrassing. Okay, so the hype hand book I know, it's by Michael F. Shine. I put the middle initial in there because there's another Michael Shine who writes books. So you got to put that accountant? in there too. I don't know. I don't know. I tried to Google it too. And I was like, yeah. who is this person? This isn't Michael. It wasn't me. So Michael F. Shine, everybody. And it is 12 indispensable success secrets from the world's greatest propagandists, self-promoters, cult leaders, mischief makers, and boundary breakers. I'm excited to read it because I think it's going to have Thank some you. extreme value inside of it. Um, where could everybody look you up as well, your company, if they want any help with any type of marketing? Thank you. Yeah, my, my company is called uh, Microfame Media. So that's Microfame and not Microframes. People seem to get that wrong, <laughs> but like famous, Microfame. And it's microfamemedia.com. Perfect. Thank you so much for being here. I appreciate Thank your you, time. And I look forward to really all of your success for all of the years it's taken you to actually get this damn book out. Yeah, this was a blast. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. What an interesting conversation, right? I'm so glad you hung around to watch the interview with Mike. I hope you run out and get the book, The Hype Handbook. I'm going to put it in the show details below for you guys to check it out. As mentioned, this was pre-recorded. No one knew what was going on. This show has nothing to do with politics. It's just simply understanding the hype behind how people's brains work. And I think Mike was really able to tap into that, putting it down on paper for us to be able to use, whether in business or personal life. And I hope you guys run out and get the book and use some of the principles to do good in this world, to do good in your life. I can't wait to talk to you guys again next week. Next episode is going to be a solo episode where it's just you and I hanging out for another quick conversation next Monday. And I can't wait to see you there.